and we're back you're back this is episode 83 of the panoramic outdoors podcast and today we're chatting with nicole Walteri, and that's part of our conservation series so nicole will join us for the second part of our conservation series where she shares a little insight with us on the media's role in conservation so we talk about that we talk a little bit about her experience in the uh, outdoor writing world and uh for those of you that don't know, Nicole is the Hunt Fish editor at Gear Junkie. So if you want to catch up on some of her work, you can definitely catch her there, gearjunkie.com. And uh, she also cut her teeth with in the hunting industry with Meat Eater. So we, we touch on that story a little bit too. Uh, Chase sat in on it with, it, with me and uh, Chase, like I just, one thing I think about, about that podcast is that it's really shown through. Uh, Nicole had like this almost like serene grace about it and i think it comes from just having a ton of experience mm-hmm. in the media industry just being able to speak confidently but eloquently about uh about all kinds of things outdoors and media related yeah yeah she had a really uh, a broad uh experience base in in uh just media in general everything from like stand up comedy to to like working for meat eater which is which is pretty cool a really interesting person uh some some great perspectives and uh yeah a great uh a great ambassador for the outdoors in my Mm -hmm. mind especially uh one coming in as a uh, late onset hunter as we would say absolutely so that's coming up stay with us but in the meantime fellas what's new what's going on sheldon you're joining us from brandon there buddy yeah, I'm not in Brandon right now. I'm actually in the big sunny city of Churchill, Manitoba, um, up here for work. So I'm just Zoom calling you guys from a different location, like usual. But kind of cool. <laughs> and how is things in Churchill, buddy? It's it's been a while, man. I feel like uh, you know, not only have the have the listeners been missing you, but but I've been missing you too. How how you been, dude? What's what's happening? It, yeah, I don't think I've been on an intro, outro, or episode for a little bit, a little while now, but I've been super busy with work, and so it's been taking me to different parts of the province to help out where I can. Um, it's kind of an unfortunate time in my in with my job just because of how things are going. So, um, yeah, I'm just doing a little bit of uh, kind of like contingency work for for my job. So, but yeah, Churchill is awesome, man. I've always loved coming up here. I had the opportunity to come up again um to help out like i said so i I jumped on that uh, not the train this time the plane and i've been up here twice now and yeah just looking after some things uh it's there's still lots of snow on the ground there's still um the ice is very thick there's still people like going across the the river to the fort here um it's gonna be i think a little while before before the snow melts and stuff like i don't know i'm not a local by any means but i'm gonna say like at least three or four weeks before um just the snow starts melting and then the ice of course will probably be into um, maybe june maybe i don't know but it's it's quite cool um it's very slow up here so there's not much uh, for tourism and stuff because of covid and everything else obviously but you start to really appreciate some of the little things and the beauty that the north the subarctic has to offer when you can uh, take your time and just take a good look around and and meet people i met a lot of great people here too in, in the last couple trips so that's not, that seems to be like the normal when you come up here. You meet really good people, and uh, you're super happy just to be able to spend some time 
in places where people don't get to spend that much time. Sheldon, I don't want to call you. It was a long-winded answer. But. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say that you're our northern correspondent, but and you're like you identified, you're not a local of the the, the Churchill town, but. From what I remember or know about Churchill, it it is a highly dependent on those tourism dollars. What's like? What's kind of the feel of Churchill right now since you've been up there? Like, is it you mentioned it's a little slower? Are people kind of feeling that, or like, what's the feel up there? Yeah, I think so. I think like the like I think you just said it there, and I think it's kind of obvious just with the COVID um, stuff that's going on in Manitoba. Yeah, there's not much here for tourism. I know the train, even uh, like half of it's closed, I think is, so you can't like rent like sleeper berths or anything like that. So I think the train traffic is very slow Um, for restaurants and hotels. Obviously they're kind of scratching by, but I noticed the restaurants hours are are a little bit different. Like they, they're only open for so many hours during the day and only a few days a week. So there's obviously some uh, repercussions because of everything. And it is, it is pretty brutal. Um, I haven't gone around and talked to some of the, some of the people that I do know from my previous trips up here, just because I'm trying to um, not, I wouldn't say stay isolated, but just trying to keep to my own and do my own thing here. So, um, but yeah, like, yeah, there's definitely, it's definitely lacking, I think in, uh, in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. That being said, go ahead, Chase. I was just going to say there's tough times for, uh, for a lot of people right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, just like I said, it's, uh, there's still everything's like at this time of the year, everything's still kind of open. Like you can still go to the museum and you still can go and check out a lot of the stuff that would be normally open. It's just mm-hmm. a lot less traffic for sure. Yeah. I guess that's the bit of the flip side to that coin. Cause I was thinking like, Hey, maybe this year might be the year to go check out Churchill because you might not be, if you're Manitoban, you might not be competing with as much of those like international tourists. So it might be a good time to support those folks up North and you might, uh, might have a pretty special trip nonetheless yeah absolutely and i i would uh totally agree with you there tristan and not only that but like anybody that's wanting to come up to churchill go on like the websites of like calm air or like via rail because they're because of the lack of travel they have some actually pretty cool programs coming on i think there's like direct flights from calgary happening right away um with maybe calm air. I don't know who it is with for sure, but I would just go on the internet and Google it. Cause I, I know there's some pretty cool programs coming out for, for Canadians and for Manitobans especially. And yeah, I know a few guys, actually a few of my friends have been asking me questions like, yeah, I've always wanted to go up there. This might be the year to do it. And I'm just like, this is the year to do it. If you want to go and check it out, this is the time to go. That's awesome. That's cool. That's good to see that they're, they're figuring some stuff out and putting some, some resources towards that. And uh, yeah, I absolutely agree that, you know, if it's, if it's been on the bucket list, you know, there's not a lot of people traveling other places right now. Um, a lot of people not going to their, you know, Mexico destinations and in the hot destinations. So if, if, uh, Churchill fits the budget, it's absolutely something that should be on the bucket list. So don't wait. Yeah. And like the other thing too, is a lot of people think it's like super expensive, which I get it. It is. The flights are expensive whatever but you can you can get on the train you know in winnipeg or maybe drive up to thompson get on the train in thompson and come up here for you know three or four hundred dollars round trip so i think like that's that's a very i'm not saying it's very affordable but it is a a affordable option um and i've i've rode in the train lots and and from for instance from thompson to churchill 
it's a long ride. Like I think it's like 16 hours, but it goes overnight. So you can sleep it off kind of idea, mm-hmm. which is nice. Like you don't actually waste a, a travel day. It's you, you do waste it like a night, but I think that's worth it for, for 300 or whatever dollars it is. You'd have to Google it or whatever, but little pro tip there for you folks, sleep it off in the train. Chase, what do you got going on this weekend? Um, I am planning on hitting the Turkey woods if I can. We'll see. Uh, we'll see if it comes together. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're just uh, Jody's coming off a of tax season right now, so uh, things are. You know, the the lights at the end of the tunnel. The last three months have been pretty swamp for us. It's it's been busy. The kids have been busy, um, and I am looking forward to getting out to the woods. I'm, I'm planning on heading out Saturday night kind of evening hunting and uh and uh spending the night in uh just just my little pop tent and we'll hunt in the morning hopefully and uh yeah hopefully get lucky i'm still chasing that uh to get the monkey off the back for the for my first turkey so um hopefully they're they're around there still matt if you whack one in the first weekend i'm definitely calling you the tax man (laughs) it's coming to collect yeah that's awesome. Um, it, it's kind of cool though, because like, as as we get into these these seasons and uh, the different hunting seasons, it's I can see my patterns of of life changing almost, and uh, I end up spending a lot of time looking like at now, um, like online maps and mainly like iHunter stuff, and it, it's iHunter right now has a lot of there if you guys don't know what iHunter is it's a it's a um it's a hunting app that is uh that has like satellite imagery you can measure distances on it you can cache waypoints cache routes stuff like that and it has uh like all your seasons and the regulation books for um all the different provinces and different areas and it's it's really really a uh an amazing tool and I, I use it quite a bit now. Um, but one thing I do, for example, so coming up for um, on Saturday when I go there, like I have all these meadows kind of like waypointed that I want to hit. I'm on my way out there. You know what I mean? So um, everything's going to be organized and I got like the quickest route to get there kind of thing. So it's, it's, uh, it's very quick and easy for me to to execute on this short window of time that I, I'm going to have in the woods. Totally. I love it too. I, I've been using it in all kinds of different ways. Like I've been using it to, to mark mushroom spots. When I've been walking around shed hunting, it's super helpful because if you see a good deer trail, you just plug it into your phone there and there or mm-hmm. then and there and you you have it marked. You can take a picture so you actually know what that bush or tree or whatever it is that you're looking at actually looks like mm-hmm. um and you can send it to a buddy like Dell was asking us where turkey camp is this year if, if there's ever such a thing and i was able to send him a waypoint that i had stored in the phone instantly yeah so like i mean there, i think there's a lot i i tell people to use it also like another buddy was asking about camping he's like can you camp on crown lands it's like yeah but it depends on the regulations so you're gonna want to check it out but i was like i use iHunter to check out a bunch of that stuff yeah um, so if I'm, I know a lot of folks in Manitoba had a hard time booking campsites, uh, 
at the provincial sites, but if you find a nice spot of crown through that app, you can do it. And they have that crown maps app program, the public lands, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. And a little little spoiler alert here for you. There, there's some uh, some big news coming down the pipe. There, um, I was talking to Mark a little bit, and he was saying that it sounds like the private land owner maps are going to be coming out for Manitoba here pretty soon. I know he has them for other provinces like Alberta and uh, a few other provinces. I'm not I'm not uh, familiar who all has them, but uh, that is one thing I'm going to be super pumped about. And uh, I think it's a few weeks away, he said. We'll, we'll definitely keep you updated when, when those roll out. But uh, it's, man, it's exciting for me that to think that I can just pull out my phone and, and check land ownership. Cause, because the thing is, um, the there's like tons of crown lands out there. You know, like the the community pastures or like um, uh, just crown owned pastures and stuff like that that we that we hunt on that a lot of times, you know, don't aren't WMAs that are clearly marked and stuff like that. So it uh, increases the access for for everybody. I think. Yeah, for sure. And then you're not drawing pretty... on a paper map. Go ahead, Shellen. I was just gonna say I'm pretty sure. I'm going to have to get, like, my legal team on this because I'm pretty sure, like, 20 years – not 20 years ago, like, 10 years ago, Chase and I were moose hunting, and we were driving around. I'm like, man, wouldn't it be sweet to – we're driving around areas we didn't know, and I'm like, wouldn't it be sweet to have something on your phone that tells you who owns what land so you could, like, look it up or talk to them, find out where their farm is, et cetera, and, and get permissions? So, unfortunately, I never jumped on that opportunity, but iHunter is obviously uh, one of those great apps you can get on your phone, and I really loved it. I haven't – use it like um re- like probably with probably since like last fall i haven't really used it much during the winter but yeah like even setting up tree stands and putting your exact location of your tree stands i know chase came hunting with me and i basically just showed him on on the iHunter app and it was i didn't even have to walk with him into the tree stand which is nice right like you don't have to be yeah you traveling lots in your hunting zones yeah you're, you're so, laying laying less scent down and making less noise heading in there so that's super cool um something else we're excited about with iHunter is that, uh, you know, they do have like a, a web-based um, program too where you can access all your same stuff online, um, web.ihunterapp.com. And if you head there and type in Panoramic 30, that's going to get you 30% off a public land subscription for one year. Panoramic 30! Yeah. So if you're if you're hesitant about that, Go check it out. It's actually cheaper than like going out for supper or a case of beer. So if you want to put that into perspective, I use this app probably, I don't know, close to 250 days a year, I'd say, you know. Cheaper than a box of 30-30 shells. (laughs) Should have made the discount code (laughs) dirty-30. Next time. Next time. And uh, yeah, and you know what the other thing I wanted to drop to is like uh, Mark Stenroos, the guy who who has the app together for us and everyone he's always up to something so give him a follow on instagram he like uh he's out outdoors testing the app or he's very easy to interact with so i'd, I'd say give that guy a follow iHunter app mm-hmm. on instagram um chase the real question i have for you though is like you're going to be out in the turkey woods obviously supported by the iHunter app uh you're doing some of your e-scouting ahead of time if you get lucky I'm gonna call you tax man 
Taxman brings a bird back. What are you thinking of doing with that thing? Because I've always wondered, like, what are you, what are you gonna, how are you gonna eat your wild turkey? How are you gonna consume it? Oh man! So th- throughout this uh, this whole wild turkey endeavor, I've been uh, like scheming recipes, and uh, a cu- a couple I have like that that I definitely want to try. And one of them is gonna be like a um, a smoked um, turkey leg. But then, like, pick the meat off and mix it up in like a cream pasta kind of Ooh. thing. You can almost make like a ravioli out of it, and yeah, something like that. So, I don't know. I I, I uh, definitely want to do some some testing out with with the, with the bird. I think I'm going to be one of those guys that like quarters it up and you know uh, freezes it in four different chunks to to make the most of it. But so to push the issue, is the pit barrel going to be involved? Oh yeah. Definitely, getting some bit peril action on that one. We we did burgers on the weekend too, and I know we done burgers before, but I was like taken aback at how good those. I had two. I normally don't have two burgers because they were big too. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is ridiculous how good these burgers are. It's almost like like the kickoff to summer when you when you get your first spring burger off the bit barrel. You know what I mean? Like we're running it all winter, but like there's <laughs> it's hard to beat a good pit barrel burger. You know, sitting in the sun, you get that warm sun hitting you, and it's a good day, man. Oh, yeah, for sure. So everyone knows we use the pit barrel ton. We're not going to stop using it. We're huge fans of it. If you want to check them out, pitbarrelcookers.com. You can also search for your local dealer there. Um, and just be sure to be stocked up on charcoal once you got that baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not going to want to stop using it, so totally sheldon do we have anything else new uh have you been uh doing any whittling or anything of that sort <laughs> i've been uh no not really i've been working like a dog but i do have a kind of a funny story is that um we've been talking a little bit with leatherman uh, if anybody doesn't know who what leatherman is go to leatherman.com on the on the old interweb and check it out but it's like a multi-tool and I'm up here in Churchill and my window doesn't work, right? And I just got this brand new Leatherman. It's called a Wave Plus. I just got it from Chase because I was just there. And, um, yeah, the window didn't work. And so I had to finally just, like, take out this multi-tool, which I've never owned a multi-tool before. So I was kind of pretty pumped to use it. And I, you know, took the little screwdriver out and I was adjusting the set screw on, like, the crank on the window because it, the crank actually popped off and got that back on, tightened it down, and I got my window working. So... Thanks to Leatherman for uh, for giving us a few of these multi tools. I'm very excited to use them actually outdoors and not in a hotel room. But until I can get outside, I, I'll use it where I can. That's awesome. Um, I've always been a, a huge fan of Leatherman. I've I've carried one for for years with me in the bush, and um, it, it's it's one of those things that you don't realize kind of like how how useful it is until you have it. And oh, yeah. it's oh, like yeah. it's it's out multiple times a day once yeah. you got one. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the price of some of these multi-tools and they are, are very affordable. They, they have some higher end ones that, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're on a budget might, you might shy away from, but, uh, you can get into one for under a hundred bucks and that sucker is going to last you a lifetime. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Totally. Chase, uh, and Leatherman, I feel like, is like a, a brand name like Browning or something that's just been around forever, putting out reliable products. Um, do you think there's such a thing as like a Leatherman 
man or like a leatherman woman like do you become like the leatherman guy now that you have this thing on your waist all the time <laughs> you could i guess it depends how influential you come uh be, how influential you become once you uh, got one in the holster but um i was actually i've been following their instagram for a while now and and they they do feature some of the 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 more elaborate leatherman collections we'll say that people have in, in their stories and stuff so it, it's pretty interesting to see you know h- how many of these tools and knives that people are collecting and, and what they're doing with them and what their favorite pieces are too so yeah i just think if you're if we're ever the, allowed the thing to is... play sport again you know and like everyone's gathering at, at the soccer field or something i think chase you could become like the the leatherman guy at the soccer field. So if someone needs like a bottle opened or <laughs> for whatever reason, or maybe, you know, maybe someone uh, needs a little first aid and needed a, a knife, <laughs> go see Chase. <laughs> I I was going to say something there, Chase, is that you mentioned a couple things that, I, that I'm interested in is obviously the price. I have a little thing, like even with, when it comes to sunglasses, I like to spend more money on a good pair of sunglasses just so I like take better care of them and I'm always making sure it's there or protected kind of idea. So that's what I'm thinking I'm going to do with this Leatherman because they, I mean, I'm not saying they are all super expensive by any means, but the one I got, I think is worth enough that I got to put a good care or take good care of it, obviously, and, and try not to lose it. The other thing that you did mention was the Instagram account. And yeah, same here. I've been following them quite a while and not only that, but like they, they have a lot of cool, um, like, programs that they've been trying to run like i th- i think last summer they did like a cooking thing when they did like uh like a bunch of features on outdoor cooks and stuff like that so their their instagram and social media game is unbelievable um and they they got some wicked content so it's a good follow even if you don't even want to buy a leatherman or whatever go follow their instagram their social media because it's it's worth a follow 100 percent. i i agree i'm i'm also on the the leatherman train following them online so i i think that's three votes Leatherman around the table. Yep. Unanimous. So Leatherman that, from the Panorama crew. That passes, just so everyone's aware. That's how the rules work. Uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe we should get to this conservation series yep. cast here. And uh, we talked about some cool things and uh, some controversial things too, I think. We talked about like the balance between that um, hunter habitat and the R3 recruitment what that looks like. So there's the, the podcast itself is packed full of information. I believe Um, this is a really fun one. So thanks again to Nicole for coming on. We know you're going to enjoy this one. We'll see you at the end credits on the other side. And welcome to the podcast, Nicole Qualtieri. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Where are you, where are you dialing in from today, Nicole? Um, I'm in Butte, Montana. Cool, cool. And so we got you on the podcast to talk a little bit about some of the, the writings you've shared with Gear Junkie. You're a the hunt and fish editor there. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the, how the media relates to conservation and the, the larger hunting movement as well. But first, you got to share a little bit about your new pup, do- uh, Bob, with us here. <laughs> What's Bob up to? Yeah. Uh, I made the mistake of getting a bird dog. No, he's awesome. Um, I actually, I've been, I've been thinking about getting a bird dog for a long time. And I was going back and forth between a couple different breeds. And uh, my former, I played um, like equestrian polo in college. And my coach 
actually retired from the polo world and she breeds Boykin Spaniels in um, Alabama. And so I reached out to her thinking I wanted to put a deposit down on a puppy. And two Christmases ago, she called me and said she was going to give me a puppy as a gift. So I know I, I kind of looked out. So I ended up getting um, Bob uh, in February. I put it off for a year because I was going through some health stuff with my knees. And yeah, he's been hilarious. I mean, he's a ball of energy. Like he's just if you're not familiar with Boykin Spaniels, they're a dog that um, the breed is around like 125 years old. They started in, I think, South Carolina um, and they're a versatile hunting dog. So upland waterfowl kind of whatever whatever you want um they do it and they're really tough and funny and kind of pint-sized they're about 30 to 35 pounds so um he won't get much bigger than my border collie which is nice and yeah they're just they're fun dogs they're flushers great retrievers and uh, he's super smart and just showing a ton of promise and it's my first time training a bird dog, so if I don't screw it up, then I think I'm going to have a really nice dog for <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, so we'll oh. see how it goes. But yeah, he's he's so great. He just makes me laugh all day long and uh, gets along really well with my my big dog, and has just been like a real joy to work with and train already. Um, and so it's been about gosh, uh, two months, six weeks. Something like that. Mm-hmm. It all blends together. I uh, I always get a kick watching Bob on your your stories or your social media. It's uh it's definitely a fun thing to to watch that little guy zooming around. How's he with the horses? <laughs> yeah, he's wild. How is he with the horses? Yeah. Um, he is really good actually. I've kind of tried to expose him in little bits, and I mean, luckily, like. The horses at the barn where I keep my two are really used to being around dogs all the time. So um, you can get around certain equines, especially mules that are not dog friendly. (laughs) But he's in like a pretty safe environment when it comes to being around safe horses. So it's nice. He's definitely keeping his distance. But uh, yeah, he's done really well. You know, he's not barking at him or chasing um, he tried to bite their tail a couple times and I had to kind of, that's like a, that's a thing with some dogs. They get really obsessed with biting on the horse's tails. And so I've really nipped that one in the bud and he hasn't done it in a while. That's but, a dangerous yeah. spot to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a good one. Brand the wheelhouse. We, uh, we just got an Irish setter at my household here and, um, Willie, he's about almost six months now. And, uh. He just met the horses at the neighbors for the first time, and they had a bit of like a standoff at the OK Corral. Like they were just yeah. <laughs> locked in on each other. So I don't know if he was trying to point them or what, but uh, yeah, it was pretty funny to watch, especially with the size difference. They're they're much different in mass, obviously. So especially when they're that little. It took little. my border collie like a long time to get used to horses. He really didn't. He really like didn't want anything to do with them, and so like once. He kind of figured it out. Um, I mean, he'll just like stay on their heels, you know, on trail rides. Anytime we go in the mountains, like um, it's probably gotten too comfortable around them. (laughs) But yeah, it's a it's definitely a little bit of a balance and there's always some risk involved. But yeah, for the most part, everybody gets along okay. 
you still have all your hair, which is fantastic. So I, I know it's been a little tense at our household. I won't look in any direction <laughs> in particular, but uh, <laughs> we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll... I haven't pulled my hair out. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's hysterical. Yeah, it's been a nice shakeup actually to have a puppy. Like all my animals are pretty good, so it's kind of nice to have one naughty one to sort of uh yeah mix yeah. everything up. You gotta earn it. You gotta earn it. Yeah, exactly. So, so kind of shifting to the media lens a little, is it fair to say that you kind of like, when we look at how you got your role in with the outdoor community, was that through Meat Eater? Is that fair to say that that was yeah, kind of yeah. your introduction there? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say like, as far as like the hunting yeah. uh, media side of things goes, that's definitely where I got my start. Um, I started there in December of 2014. So, so yeah, this December I will have been working in like hunting media for seven years, um, which is really wild to think about. I don't know, like it's not really a career path that I saw myself on. So, um, it's been crazy to, to go down this road and just continue to get a better education about what it means to, in my position, like communicate with the public mostly about hunting and occasionally, um, to do things that are more, I guess, like um, inside facing within the hunting community and having those conversations with people has been really enlightening. And honestly, like it's been really fun to go and like, like hunting just has so many things that are fun to think about, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. same with fishing. So it's never boring. You know, I, I like find myself just consistently more and more curious about like what the world offers and how we can connect to it. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it, maybe it was a little unfair to say uh, outdoors. Sometimes we use that here as a, a blanket term for hunting and fishing just to cover those. But um, it, it sounds like you were well steeped in outdoor culture. But as far as the hunting and fishing side, that that was new to you seven years ago, kind of was the, the, the dipping your toes in or taking it more seriously, we could say. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Ohio. And so I grew up kind of around like whitetail culture and like a different kind of hunting. And then when I, we moved to Colorado when I was in high school and that was kind of a different outdoor culture. I was more like in an urban area where I'd been more in the country as a kid. So um, I wasn't really exposed to hunting until really like I, I guess I was like here and there in college and like I had friends that duck hunted and had duck dogs and at that point, it just wasn't something that was even on my radar, you know? Um, we kind of just made fun of them for going out <laughs> and killing ducks. So it was it was like uh, I had my share of the outdoors through, like, skiing and horseback riding, and I played soccer and lacrosse and really was more of an athlete than anything else. And when I moved to Montana in 2012... I really got kind of a quick education in outdoor recreation. I mean, landing in Bozeman. It, I mean, Bozeman's even a lot different today than it than it was in 2012. But really, it's a mecca for outdoor recreation. Like, whatever it is you want to do. I mean, you're five minutes away from the Bridger Mountains. You're, you know, 30 minutes away from the Gallatin Mountains. And, you know, you're within a couple hours of some of the most incredible wildernesses that exist on the planet. So... I really got pulled in uh, by the culture of Montana and hunting was just a natural part of that, you know? So 
Um, it was interesting. The more I did outside, the more curious I got about hunting. And it wasn't necessarily from a meat perspective as much it was like from a wildlife and landscape perspective. So I decided that I wanted to be a hunter before I worked at Meat Eater. Um, I had done a bunch of backpacking on my own. And actually, I'd worked for um, I worked as a seamstress for uh, Mystery Ranch Backpacks. I did that for like nine months. Um, that was like technically like my first job in the outdoors, which is still hilarious to this day. Um, was this kind of was this kind of like the equivalent of like a an actor going to L.A. or something and having to bust tables for a little while? Is that like you cutting your teeth in the? Is that yeah. what is that what happens in Bozeman? Is you like you go work at one of these shops until you can become outdoor famous? Is that is that the plan? That's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so. <laughs> I'll back up a little bit. I worked in corporate sales for five years. So like I, I, um, that was really like where I had set my feet in a career and I, I moved to Montana. Um, actually like I'm one of like the probably one or 2% of Montanans that like move here to like for a job, you know, like I didn't come to Montana for like a dream. You know what I mean? Okay. So you had something lined up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I was working in the educational publishing industry. So oh. I was doing something like totally different. Yeah. And I just, I kind of got steeped in the Montana culture pretty quickly. And I hated the job. It was just like, it was not the right job for me. And so I lasted about six months. And then I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And I kind of had like, like quarter life crisis, you know, like, um, okay, I've been doing this for a while. Like, what am I going to do now? And I was like, well, I want to work in the outdoors. I want to write, you know, I want to do all these things. And so, yeah, I bartended (laughs) and then I got the job at Mystery Ranch. And then um, from there, I kind of just took a summer to backpack and um, do a bunch of different things like all over Wyoming and Montana. And and then I came back to Bozeman and was looking for jobs and uh, the meat eater job was on Craigslist. And, you know, at that point I didn't know who Steven Ranella or meat eater was. So like I applied for this job and actually what I, <laughs> what got me excited about the job was that it was through ZPZ productions, which was Anthony Bourdain's production company. So like, I was like, Holy shit. Like I, like Anthony Bourdain's amazing, you know? And then, um, I was like, but who is this guy? And so I went to the <laughs> library and, uh, you know, pulled out Steve's books. And I was like, okay, yeah, like I could work on this kind of hunting show. So um, I don't, I guess I don't really do anything kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Like it's all like, (laughs) it all becomes like a a game of research and intention. And, um, but I will say that like, it was really luck that led me into the industry Um, and happenstance. It certainly wasn't an intention. So yeah, I wanted to learn how to hunt. I kind of had like put that out there, but I didn't know where to begin. And then I landed like in the best place you could possibly land. So like, yeah, it's, it's a really different kind of journey. That Yeah, definitely. Uh, you landed in the right spot there. I'm curious. Do you, do you have friends now that uh, look back and or not look back, but uh, that, you know, uh, give you the gears for heading out duck hunting and stuff like that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I definitely have some friends that are like, what happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I went from, like, really doing one thing to another. Um, 
I would say like the weirdest thing. So when I lived in Denver and was in the like corporate scene, like my my hobby, I don't know, I'm always doing hobbies, but um, I did stand up comedy for a few years. So I was like in this like world where I was with like a super interesting group of people, you know, and like we were constantly busting each other's chops on stuff. And so it's really funny to like go back to Denver and like see my friends and they're like, what is happening? Like you wear camo now? Like what is going on? So um you know and actually my friends that duck hunted uh we've been we were hoping to get together for a hunt last year my college friends and so yeah i, I think everyone's a little confused as to where, like, anyone that's known me for a long time is just like whatever like nicole's just off doing her thing and you know somehow she ends up you know being a hunter and i, I don't know that anyone who knows me really well is surprised because i'm I've constantly kind of been a little off the wall, you know. That's cool. That's so cool. What was the, like, how did you find out you got the job at Meat Eater? Did Steve call you up or did the one of the, rela- the communications folks or how did how did you find out? Do you remember? Um, I mean, I, I interviewed with, so, like, people that are, like, longtime fans of the show would remember, like, Helen and Brittany from like one of the first episodes where Steve like took new people out hunting. Um, and I actually interviewed with them like the day before they left to go on that trip. And I just interviewed with Helen and Brittany and I know there were a couple people up for that job, but I was actually their first Bozeman hire. Um, there were only four of us in the office and the other three were from New York. And then Giannis had come up from Colorado, I think. So yeah, it was me and Giannis and Brittany and a guy named Dan Doty. And Helen um, was in New York, like working for ZBZ full time there. So it was a really small crew back then. <laughs> it was like, and it, and it wasn't like the brand that it's become today. You know, it was a separate entity um, that was based around the show. We didn't even get onto Netflix until, you know, 2015. So. I think I was there for like a year before we were on Netflix and then, so that we would have been on Sportsman's channel, you know, and figuring out like different ways of distributing the show online. So that was like a really different time than what, what people think of the brand now. Mm-hmm. So you were not just in like it, it wasn't maybe the, the first founding step of meat eater, but you got in at a time where there was some, rapid expansion coming up and so meat eaters looks a lot different than it does obviously seven years ago um and i'm just and obviously they've influenced the 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 discourse on hunting and fishing throughout throughout the continent in in unthinkable ways um what was it like kind of being on the the ground floors for some of that change like what I'm guessing you had you hired more staff, but like what 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 was like being on the inside for that? Yeah, I mean it was sort of interesting. So I was doing like their social media, like front facing communication, answering all their like fan emails, and like um, like I really went back to square one and in my career, and and then like that position kind of grew into digital marketing, and like I worked a lot with First Light and like figuring out gear and like ended up like designing like hats and t-shirts you know, and stuff like that. Like, and basically kind of, uh, built the, like the foundation that kind of led to where they are now, you know, um, when I started, I think we had just hit a hundred thousand fans on 
Facebook, but no one was really doing the Instagram. And so I took over the Instagram and took that from like 10,000 to over a hundred thousand in the two years that I, two plus years that I was there. And, you know, I had to talk Steve into doing his own Instagram (laughs) and I like, he didn't want to do it. (laughs) So he would text, he would text me pictures and then I would like ghostwrite captions for him initially. So like, and then it like really started taking off and, um, and he was like, Oh, I should learn how to do this. And so Brittany and I like helped him figure it out and you know, (laughs) the rest is history. But Um, yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting and fun time. Um, like algorithmically, it was probably the most fun time to be working in social media, you know, like everything that I did there was organic, like we had no budget to work with. So like, it was like, okay, well, how are we going to work with and the temperature of what's going on in social media to get people in on the conversation? And, and really like when I was working there, social media wasn't necessarily what, people were super worried about so I could sort of uh like like make mistakes and and try new things and yeah exactly um and like learn the hunting language like in the process you know like I always say like poor Giannis like he had to put up with 4,000 questions for me a day on how to answer questions and um how to frame something I mean he's just the best so uh yeah it's it was a really interesting thing, you know, to see it go on Netflix changed everything. Um, you know, I think Steve's relationship with Joe Rogan sort of set uh, like a totally different trajectory um, in many ways, you know, um, and I think now Steve does that for people within the hunting industry. Right. So like you see kind of like all these ripple effects and yeah, I mean, it's it's super interesting. I mean, I, I still benefit off of, you know, my time there. So seeing it change and grow is certainly interesting from the perspective of someone who was there, like, for such a long time in this sort of in-between role, you know? Like, I think about, like, the role that I had there, and, you know, now they have a team of 30 people that, <laughs> that does that. So it's, like, it's really interesting to think, like, how... It's. I think it's a good education in when you set a good foundation, like it's much easier to grow, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Were there any real, like, I'm sure there were, but is there any ones that come to mind real, like maybe sharp learning lessons or maybe some funny um, incidents as you're continuing to grow that company and uh, dip your toes for, or further into the, the hunting yeah, I think you called it the hunting dialect or something like that. Yeah, um, hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, there are lots. Um, you know, uh, Steve sort of let me experiment with stuff, and like I wrote some of my first articles about hunting there, like really even before I could call myself a hunter, and um, and he gave me the space to do that, and it sort of showed. I I started to see like what kind of impact like just an article could have, you know, like. I remember publishing an article about um, what I would call the persecution complex in social media and how hunters felt like they were consistently being attacked. And um, and so I wrote up a piece and Steve helped me edit it and then we put it out and it did really well. I mean, like lots and lots of views. And, and it was cool to see the conversation uh, nuance develop like within our audience. You know, I think part of the, good about the algorithm back then 
was that people could really like engage organically with a brand, you know? Um, I think when you're having like ads and things constantly shoved in your face, like it's a lot harder to authentically engage. And um, so that, that I think um, we've lost a little bit. Like the other side of it, I mean, we did a lot with like public lands and conservation when I was working there. And a lot of that was like from, um, like I was volunteering with BHA and backcountry hunters and anglers for anyone who isn't aware. And we basically uh, unseated a congressman in Utah. So yeah, once like a bill kind of went through to to sell 7.2 million acres of public land and I called Steve and I was like, we need to write an article about this. Like it's really heating up. And that was our first article that like went over a million views and, you know, it was reposted all over the internet. And yeah, I mean, that congressman was unseated in his next term. And I think that what we did had a lot to do with it, you know? So I think people, um, people, uh, like give social media flack for like not being the best place, but like we can also get a lot of things done there. So it's sort of, yeah, it's a it's a push and pull, you know. Those are probably the two big lessons that I took away was that like we can create good conversations and like and we can also do good things, you know. Social media is definitely a tough place to to kind of gauge, you know, the like you said there is a lot of crappy stuff that that kind of comes with it, but there is like obviously as you've experienced through media, a lot of good that can come with it too. And it's a great communication tool if we, you know, the proper intentions with it. Um, man, I'm just, I'm just thinking, I've been thinking about the, through this whole conversation about your time at Mediator here, how like you quite possibly could be like the, the perfect candidate for that, for that uh, position for Mediator too, because you're coming into the, the Mediator scene as a, uh, a non-hunter, not against hunting at all, but you know, not a lot of hunting experience and then, uh, but also have interest in hunting and, uh, you have this huge skill set and big personality, which fits in quite well with the mediator crew. But <laughs> I think, I think the real value here from my standpoint is having that, uh, the, the non-hunter and becoming the late onset hunter as people call it, um, where you, uh, you know, you have that, that almost the hindsight view on, on things that you're already getting involved in. Um, do, yeah. do you think that gave you a, a good edge for that position? Um, I think so, because I, I mean, it's hard not to have, like, it's hard not to have an outsider perspective in a way. Uh, man, like, how would I phrase that? I mean, I think, I think that like the, the shortfall in a way was like, um, I definitely, like, I can't really think of anything specific that I did early on, but I remember just having, like, hiccups in the way that I was talking about hunting that, like, I was worried would cost us, like, legitimacy. You know what I mean? Because, like, I was really, um, I mean, when you're doing social media, you're essentially ghostwriting in the voice of a brand, right? So, like, I had to figure out, like, all of these things very quickly. But, like, luckily I had great people around to ask. I think that, like, there is certainly an advantage to coming in as an outsider, but like meat eater has always kind of been that way, you know, like they're a hunting show that's produced by a documentary company. Like they're not a hunting show that's produced by a hunting company, you know, like the, the cameramen that were on crew weren't hunters for the most part. Um, like 
everyone had sort of worked their way in from a weird place. And I mean, even today, like meat eaters, like the the staff, the non like front facing staff, like the back end staff is like more than 50 percent women. And it was really the same then, like women on the post production team, women on the edit team. Like so we really were kind of an outlier anyway, you know, so I would say that I fit in more into the culture that it was then. You know, and I'm not saying that there's not room for that in their culture now. I think there is. But but yeah, I was super lucky to um, be able to come into hunting in like a really like non-traditional route, both on the professional side and like on the personal side. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Meat Eater had like this diversity, this plethora, maybe a a mixing pot of um, all different personalities chipping in. And they were able to produce something that up until that point, it seemed like no other company was making. And it seemed like, um, at least my takeaway from Meat Eater has always been that they, they seemed to, that arrow hit a little closer to truth of what the hunting story is than most other productions that I've seen. So I think um, we're maybe touching on a little bit now with the the role of media and telling the outdoor story the outdoor experience but like mm-hmm. uh, I, i'm wondering like at the very high level is that kind of like does the media have a obligation as, as storytellers as uh portrayers of fact and fiction to uh to to tell it in a certain way yeah that's an interesting question i read a lot of creative nonfiction and actually like I went and heard one of my favorite authors speak and she said that all creative nonfiction is like 82% fact and 18% (laughs) fiction. So I always thought that was an interesting point. And it certainly like plays into um, any type of storytelling, right? I mean, if you think about like the hunts that those guys went on, I mean, when you're filming for 10 days and, and putting it into a 22 minute edit i mean it's a very different story than what actually happened you know um in the backcountry or on set or on the hunt or wherever you are so yeah i i do think that we have an obligation to tell the truth as much as we can you know and that's something that i think about like really all the time in my work it's like especially if i'm going to write about something that is going to be maybe difficult for some people to hear or like the the framing of an argument is flipped like I I like to do that like I I just have fun like figuring out like okay like how do we reframe a narrative like how do we tell this in a different way so that we're being more critical about it and more creative right like I think that there's a lot of room in the hunting industry for more creativity for sure so if I'm hearing you correctly there, it sounds like you're, you're saying to me that the, the, the role in some ways of media in telling both the hunting and conservation story is to push the needle a little bit in some ways as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, iron sharpens iron. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, if we're not figuring out like how to disagree with each other and like learn from that, then like we're not doing our jobs. And so, Nicole, I'm I'm wondering, too, like uh, another conversation we had with a previous guest, uh, Paul McCurney, he writes a lot about ethics and hunting, ethics and outdoors and conservation, um, comes from a biology background. And 
Paul kind of mentioned that there's he feels that there's a lot of like internal strife in some ways with the with the hunting community. Um, we disagree, and sometimes we view that as a threat, and uh, even that disagreement within the community. Um, have have you noticed something like that? And does does the media have a kind of a, a spot in that that kind of tension? Yeah, I mean, I think Paul's awesome, first of all, and I need to go back and listen to that podcast you did with him because he's great. Um, and we connected actually early on when I was working at Meat Eater. So yeah, it's um it's interesting to think about. I I think that uh, discourse has changed a lot really in the past, like not even decade, right? Like Instagram sort of like hit its stride like right around 2012. So yeah, I guess we're getting close to a decade with um, everybody kind of being on social media. But I guess the reason that I'm going that route is because I think that one thing that people forget that social media did was it democratized conversation and like created space for like a lot of new voices and communities to kind of create conversations within themselves. So I think where we were used to a very prescribed kind of media where, you know, outdoor life and field and stream were the magazines and outdoor channel and sportsman channel were the hunting channels. And those were the, the experts, right? They were the authorities. So, or like people leaned more on books, but like you have to go through a network of people in order to get a book published. Right. So then we kind of like hit this new stride in media communications where, you know, you have someone like Remy Warren who can like essentially like shoot an entire television show by himself, like out in the field, write articles for, I can't remember who he was writing for Western Hunter, um, like do all of these different things and like kind of build like a mini like media platform, like all by himself. Right. So like, I feel like that, kind of thing then sort of translated into like new voices being able to have some sort of authority. Right. So like, I, I guess I like see myself as like, not only like a student of that new media world, but like as a beneficiary, you know, I, I don't think that a non hunter would have had a job at like one of those top tier magazines, like as a, woman coming into it like late later in life and like had any sort of voice or like any sort of like ability early on to say hey this is what I think and this is what I'm seeing and this is my outside perspective and maybe some people want to listen to it but maybe some people don't and you know I think that's okay I guess where I'm going with this is that I think I think it can be hard for like the people that are traditionalists you know like I think if we're getting into like personality types I would venture to guess that hunting naturally has a lot of people that are traditionalists, you know, Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like, I think humans need ritual and tradition, and I think that, like, we need those social connections. Um, But I think that where traditionalists can get frustrated is when they they see things change, right? And so, like, I don't think that's exclusive to hunting. Like, I think that that's more cultural, you know, like we see people pushing back against change all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's good change or bad change, it doesn't matter. It's change. And so it's inherently scary. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that to me, I think uh, is something that is, there are like few things that are, I think hard for me to empathize with, but like the braces against change 
that's that is pretty hard for me to to understand because uh, like at least in my own life like i've been able to like sink into change and see it as like a good thing so um i don't know that's a really esoteric <laughs> answer to that question i feel but, i feel like that's such a weird thing as, as like uh we as humans overall that we have that that resistance to change because like as a species we're constantly evolving and we're like everything's like okay how do we make this better how do we make that better how do we how do we do something different so we're more successful here how do we make something more efficient yet here we are how do we hang on to this old ass way of doing things and that's good enough kind of thing you know you know what i mean yeah absolutely i'm totally with you and i think like I guess it like it reminds me of being like in my childhood where like the neighborhood kids like would have like a clubhouse and like the clubhouse would either have like a no boys allowed sign on the outside of it or like a no girls allowed sign, you know, and and like we had our in groups, right, that like we did certain things with like certain activities. So like I see, you know, the I feel like the older I get, like the more I realize nobody has grown up. <laughs> you know, like everything, like the hunting industry is just a high school and like I'm constantly navigating my way through drama. So like the reality is, is that like, I think, I think that sort of extends, um, especially when people are like, uh, you know, um, you know, and not a lot of people are like this, I don't think anymore, but pushing back against women getting into hunting or like um, LGBTQ folks getting into hunting or you know, um, people of color getting into hunting. Like the reality is, is that like, that's always been there. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like it just hasn't been on the front page. Mm -hmm. So then we have social media where like, it becomes more obvious when people are like, are, are being different in traditional spaces. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. uh, it can be harder for people to stomach like seeing people not necessarily hunting the way that they've always hunted mm -hmm. or not looking the way that they think it should look, I right. guess. For all things across society, social media has caused us to hold up a mirror and not just a mirror, like 10 million mirrors. So it's, it seems like, or hundreds of millions of mirrors. Um, the, the, the changes that the democratization of that, discourse the, of, of the language of hunting of of how we talk about hunting and relate to each other um not only kind of um set a different message but it seems like it also like rattled the consciousness of who we are as hunters in some ways too right it, it shook the cage in some so it, it makes sense to me that there would be that that threatening feeling there because our identity is is shifting and at least the way we look back at ourselves now through that mirror it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, you know, I think that's one of the interesting things to me is that like my identity has never been grounded in hunting, you know, like, um, it, it's a, it's a very like small portion of like what I've done in my life. So I can certainly call myself a hunter now, you know, like after years of work and like, um, some really successful hunts, you know, and, um, solo hunting and like all these different things that I've been able to do since getting into it but but yeah it's uh i i i think that like when people have grown up in hunting traditions and it is a part of their identity 
they forget that there are also like a lot of other things too, <laughs> like whether that's like an athlete or a skier or, you know, like an amateur cook or whatever it is that we do, you know, like hunting as much as there are people that it looks like they're hunting all of the time, like um, the majority of people are not. So I think that as much as it can be an identity, it's also important to have some balance in that and, and like also to take pride in it. I mean, I think it's really, you know, one of my best girlfriends is like a fifth or sixth generation Montana hunter and like it, it's come through her family matrilineally, which is like very interesting and different, you know, but like talking to her grandma who was actually in Steve's documentary stars in the sky like Ellen hunted elk by herself in the Bob Marshall and scapegoat wilderness of Montana and like killed a cow elk every year. She never killed a bull because she didn't need to, like she killed a cow for me. And like, she was just so no nonsense about it. It was like, well, no one's going to stop me from going out there with my mules or my horses. Like, and I'm just going to do what I do, you know, like that's what her brothers did. That's what she did. And there wasn't, there wasn't any societal pressure on her. Do you know what I mean? Like people are like, Oh, Ellen, like she's just as badass of a hunter as the guy next door. And you know, like she doesn't, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I just think it's really different. You know, when we're putting our, when we're putting our lives in like a performative space, like what does that mean for our intentions? You know? So like, I, I do think that there's that side of it. Would, would Ellen as like a young woman today, like, killable like probably do you know what i mean <laughs> like like she would probably feel pressured to do that you know yeah. so i mean i i think that there's like there's also those cultural things where like women didn't necessarily like face the pushback when they were going and doing something or they just weren't getting the invites so they're doing it on their own you know like um it's really cool to like hear about the stories of like these women that were like hardcore packers and horsewomen and you know, cowgirls alongside everybody else. But, um, you know, the mountains here are named after men. <laughs> they're certainly not named after women. And they're, you know, and the majority of them aren't named after the indigenous cultures that inhabited the, those spaces before we did. So, like, what does that mean? I think I think it's important to, like, see the historical context and what we do. And, um, and I think that a lot of these conflicts are modern conflicts, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, of course they have roots, but you know, I, I think about Ellen and like how no nonsense she was about it. And she's like, well, there's no need to get emotional about it. Like I'm just killing a cow elk for meat for my family, you know? So it's like, it's a very different world that we live in. Mm-hmm. I think, I think all that, that whole conversation too ties in well with the, you know, you, you uh, referenced um, you, like mainstream media back in the day when there was, you know, just TV, channels and and the the shows on on those channels to watch and if you look at those shows there's like i mean a very similar um user group in those television shows so essentially you know if, if those are the only source of of media for how many ever years that was and then you like you said release this social media platform where everybody has has uh i mean almost equal ability to post whatever they want you know it's a it's a big impact for a lot of people totally yeah absolutely and so you you're not working at uh media mediator anymore you've transitioned over to gear junkie what was that transition like yeah 
Um, hold on just a second. Hey, Butch, come here. Butch is like chewing on a mule deer bone. That's where I worked for about a year and a half um, doing social media and communications and the website. And then um, I started my own small social media company and worked with a couple of different brands um, and started freelance writing and um, gotten in with Gear Junkie. One of their editors at the time reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to write for us? And um, so that was also another really organic, <laughs> lucky thing. You know, um, I wasn't like looking for a specific job. I actually was hoping to stay in the freelance world and then just kind of got this opportunity to work for Gear Junkie full time. And yeah, so now I've been doing that for three years. And that's just kind of a it's just been sort of wild, you know, like it's just having these opportunities come up at these moments where it fits together and in Gear Junkie, for anyone who's not familiar, is really a site that's dedicated to outdoor gear and all of its facets. So whether that's, you know, going skiing or going running or exercising at home, but they also dipped their toes into hunting and like realized there was this audience within their audience that was really potent and like needed, you know, great information on hunting gear and fishing gear. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of like their their only uh I guess like activity specific editor, <laughs> you know, like everybody else kind of covers everything and I sort of like manage my own little planet with Gear Junkie Huntfish, which has been really fun. But it's it's also cool because, you know, my stories are, you know, on the front page of Gear Junkie along with a running story or a climbing story. So like I think it really covers the breadth of what it means to be an outdoor outdoors person, you know? That's, I think anyone can come to our site and find something that works for them. That seems to mesh really well or almost be the, the counterweight to um, what we noticed. We we had land on the, the podcast too, and that very much seems to be the model of BHA as well, which is to like bring all these user groups under one umbrella and kind of see what you have in common. Um, and it sounds like Gear Junkie here is now saying, focus down, for, for Nicole at least, focus down in on hunting. But I've taken a look at your, your portfolio there too, and you're writing about everything and anything on hunting, um, everything from the policy side of things to conservation to, uh, you know, what's the latest and greatest in gear. So it's kind of cool to see the both the, the focus on hunting and fishing, but also the wide span that you have within that that platform as well. Yeah, I mean, I really have free reign. <laughs> like, I don't know that, like, any other, like, hunting or fishing editor, like, has the amount of freedom that I do. I mean, I just, I don't work in a bureaucratic position, you know. So I I have an awesome edit team. Um, we have, like, a really deep editing system, you know, where every article gets at least, like, three tiers of eyes on it, you know. So we help each other a lot like especially when it comes to writing anything that's controversial um you know we'll spend an hour on the phone with each other trying to figure out like what the best way to approach it is so it's pretty like it's it's a really open environment to work in um like the majority of what i do you know isn't writing an opinion piece it's writing about gear or writing about what's going on in the hunting media world or um telling a story about conservation so yeah, it's a it's a good deal, I guess, in, in like the best in the best terms. The uh, the piece that caught our eye there, we're wondering, um, was it a controversial piece? The uh, the habitat not hunters was that 
kind of on the edge or is that pretty much right yeah. in the wheel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think I, I counted and I received like over 150 messages on social media about it. Yeah. I mean, it, and it kind of uh, kicked off a big discussion in the industry. So yeah, it was super, it was super interesting. I don't necessarily, I knew it was going to get like some feedback, but like, I didn't realize like, what uh, what button I was pushing with people. Um, I think a lot of people misread what I wrote or they didn't understand the entire critique that I put together. So if I go back, if anyone hasn't read this, essentially I argued that we've been focusing a lot of our energy on these R3 recruitment efforts. And I think that we've lost the habitat effort sort of in that battle. And I don't, the reality is that like a lot of the R3 movement was built around this idea that hunter numbers are declining and that we're about to lose all of these hunters and then we're not going to have any money for converse conservation. And so like there's kind of the social panic around like the capitalism side of hunting, which to me is not a good argument for bringing people in, you know, like I, I think it's important to make sure that if people want to learn about hunting, that they have spaces to go do that, you know, and if people want to learn about hunting, that they have communities that are going to support them on that journey. Like, um, I am full bore on that route, you know, and what I really want people to take away is that, um, hunter numbers don't necessarily have to be like a death grip on the future of hunting. You know, I think that, We'll always have hunters, like we'll have tradition, we'll have all of these things as long as we're able to maintain space, habitat, and ecosystems for wildlife, you know? And I think that those two things work hand in hand, right? So I think there are creative solutions for funding conservation beyond the current model. I think that there, you know, I we've lost somewhere like 53 million acres of grasslands in the past 20 years to me that's like growing up in the midwest like that's an like undeniable loss you know like the amount of birds that we're losing is insane we've lost a billion birds three billion breeding age birds and these are things that are actual real losses right now you know like whether we're going to lose the boomer generation isn't necessarily like a a conversation that we need to worry about now as much as we have like all of these other problems that are going on within our, our ecosystems, making sure that like, not only are we help, like creating healthy habitat for game species, but like we need to be creating healthy habitat for all species. And I think that like, there can be a little bit of a tunnel vision on like what hunters want, like whether it's a big buck or a big elk. And at the end of the day, like, we also need to take care of the robins and we need to take care of everything that is a part of this ecosystem. So, yeah, it becomes um, uh, a little granular at that level, I think. But, but um, I really just wanted to make a point that uh, the social panic around hunter numbers is maybe a little too panicky when, like, you really should be out like what's happening on the landscape, you know, like we can come up with other ways to fund things and we can come up with really great systems to support anyone who wants to come to hunting, right? Like mentorship programs, however we want to do it. 
but I don't think that recruiting for the sake of recruiting is necessarily the right way to bring hunters in, you know? So, um, I'm not against hunter recruitment. I'm against hunter recruitment because we haven't figured out another way to fund conservation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that everyone who is interested in hunting should have a path into it, you know, and I am certainly an example of that. So, you know, and I've, I've hosted women's deer camps where I've had like 18 to 25 women come to Montana and we hunt together. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly behind like creating the right space for people to learn. Do you think it has anything to do with maybe the reality that a, um, a white-tailed deer that's well-managed or on prime habitat doesn't buy the latest pattern of camouflage? <laughs> um, I mean, like, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly think that, like, like, brands have a vested interest in creating an audience is going to um, buy their gear, right? Mm -hmm. So recruiting hunters seems like, like a good deal for big hunting brands, but... I'm just not sure that's a good reason. Do you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, I think it's connected. But also, like, I'm a cog in the wheel, you know, like I'm writing about gear and working with all these brands. So at the end of the day, like, I think there's space for everyone, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I just don't really believe in the idea of hunter recruitment because um, that's the only model that's going to work. Like, I don't necessarily right. think we need to replace hunters when we don't necessarily have the carrying capacity for them on a landscape that is continuously diminishing. I mean, if you ask any hunter, like what, especially hunters in like areas that are more privatized, like what's the biggest block to hunting? Well, it's access, you know, even here in Montana in my time hunting, like I've seen more, more hunters on the landscape, you know, and that's a very, very short, you know, that's six years. Mm -hmm. So like, what does, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. well, seeing more people on the landscape just as recreators, whether they're like hiking or mountain biking, like what impact does that have on wildlife? You know, there's like, there's a lot to think about. And I also understand that I'm culpable <laughs> in, in that landscape too, but that doesn't mean that I can't critique it and hopefully help the community come up with like better answers or at least like cause some cognitive dissonance in an echo chamber <laughs> the the article seemed to me to be arguing not necessarily for pulling the r3 methodology but more so adding balance to the equation of how do we how do we promote conservation efforts from all sides here because it sounds like i can only imagine like being a new hunter at this point and trying to access a spot and either that spot being really poor in quality or not having an access point at all, right? That, that would be the most discouraging thing for me, I could imagine, in trying to get into the hunting as, an, as a sport or lifestyle would be that, that, uh, that access for sure. And I think maybe one thing that, that the States has done really well previously was compared to the more European model that they, they learned from as colonization worked its way west, um, they, they protected a lot of those lands, right? Um, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the Western hemisphere of North America is, uh, large and sprawling by a lot of measures. But what you're saying here is we're, we got to be careful about that encroachment that seems to just keep flowing no matter what. And, uh, think critically about, 
not just how do we bring more hunters in, but how do we protect what we have uh, as assets in both land and wildlife um, on that end of the spectrum too. Yeah, and I also, um, and this is probably more controversial, but like if there are areas that are doing poorly, like we shouldn't be hunting those areas very heavily. You know what I mean? Like, or if there are access points that are getting overridden with people, then we need to figure out how to manage the damage that people do to the land. I mean, I can't imagine that there's a hunter out there that hasn't seen habitat that's been damaged by human recreation, you know, mm-hmm. or been a part of it. Right. So we have a lot of mitigation to do. <laughs> and, and I think that like, hopefully in the next like 20, 30, 50 years, we're figuring out how to better protect ecosystems. You know, and I think that's where it comes back to that idea of carrying capacity. And, and right, the North American model of wildlife conservation is probably the best yet, right? Like, um, we also have to work with what we've got, you know, and I trust science and I trust the biologists to know that, like, we can take a certain amount of animals off the landscape and still, like, have healthy ecosystems, you know. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I... This is also something that gets in the weeds, but yeah, I mean, I think that with the history of um, colonization and indigenous lands, we also have, we're behooved to protect a lot of these lands. You know, Um, I think that if there's one thing that we can do to uh, make some sort of reparation to the cultures that came before us, like it's probably going to involve public lands to an extent. It's probably going to involve understanding like how to better manage wildlife and yeah i think protection should definitely be at the top of that list but um it's all complicated it's predicated you know it's all complicated and predicated on some pretty gnarly histories of um genocide and a lot of other things so i think uh i came into the idea of public lands with like a really rosy like a very rose-colored lens of what it was and the more I dig into it, the more I am like curious how it's going to look in the future. But I would say that like, whatever it looks like, we're behooved to protect it. We're behooved to protect the wildlife, the, the plant life, you know, like there's a lot of things that um, have changed in plant life. And because of that, like the, the species have changed, you know, there's, there was an 82% decrease in the Northern Bob white quail in the American South. And the reason for that is because of the way timber companies are managing the land for the most part. You know, they're managing areas that don't have a lot of low growth for these birds to protect themselves. So how do we actually manage the land where everyone is winning? And I think that's possible. You know, I think we've seen it with whitetails in a lot of parts of the country. You know, I think that translates over for other species. But yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of big questions about what's going on. (laughs) And uh, a lot of ideas that I think have been hard for me to grapple with, you know, like, I think like, I, I don't want to uh, come across as like, self righteous. These are all just things that I am thinking about, you know what I mean? And we've, we've, okay, so we've kind of, again, like with our conversation with Paul, in many ways, we've wove a very complicated web here, we can see that there's um, nonprofits involved in conservation and hunting there's there's um business there's there's government involvement obviously there's politics involved um it's this very complicated and uh at times messy 
interlay of all these different, not just uh, communities, but people. And you're kind of writing about some of this here from your perspective and as a, you know, a, a media person, the, do you think that hunt habitat not hunters is like helping push the needle like is that is that where you see the role of uh some of the work that media can do here is like you're collecting it seems like you're collecting information from the biologists the scientists the people on the ground um lining that up with the political landscape and trying to make a bit of an argument forward here um so would it would it be fair to say that you're kind of like the the collator of ideas and then <laughs> kind of uh, propo- propelling those ideas out into the, the if not the microscope, the, the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, I think that is really like, like a journalist's job, right? Is to like go and gather a bunch of perspectives and hopefully come back with something that is thought provoking. You know what I mean? Um, you know, and journalism can certainly take a lot of different forms. And I think it's gotten a bad rep with, um, you know, people representing it in ways that aren't necessarily truthful. So, yeah, I I like that. I, I like that idea of being a collator of, of views and hopefully coming out with something that's valuable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the hardest things for me is like writing a true news piece. Like I'm not a trained journalist. Um, I have a degree in sociology and criminal justice. I don't have a degree in writing. So uh, I, I, yeah, I have like a really different viewpoint because of my education, but at the end of the day, it's a lot harder for me to like take myself out of the writing and, uh, but it's become easier. Like as I've learned how to do it with gear junkies. So like writing a lot of those conservation pieces, I really like try to take a step back and, um, disassociate like my biases or my like emotional reactions to some of the content, you know? and try to go at it with a fair shake. That doesn't mean that uh, it's perfect. You know, I think humans are naturally biased. So, but, but I'm trying. And the, luckily I have like really great journalists that I work with on staff that um, help me dial in like a lot of those conservation pieces or news pieces. But that's been a really great thing to learn. You know, I think we should all learn how to try to, you know, pull ourselves out of an argument. Like that's like, and also to argue the other side, you know, like sometimes I write something that I don't agree with, but I need to write it in a way that is factual and going to, you know, at least give people a place that they can trust to come to you to read something. And like, it's kind of funny that it's happening on a gear website, but you know, that's what I've got. That's pretty cool. Uh, on the personal level, I'm wondering, cause we've kind of seen not just the, the diversity perspectives creep into media but also like the polarization of it all too is there any like moment in your mind where you like personally were maybe rattled or you know deeply affected by maybe some of the well some of your job i guess it would be like is there has there been like any real lows there or has it all kind of been like kind of a a high a plateau of some sort yeah i mean yeah i'm human i don't know like that like things get to me i you know, I like had been trolled online like on and off for a while by like a couple different like um, Instagram accounts where they'll like pull like actual personal information and like put it on their story or put it on the Internet or like create a meme about me. And like uh, that, that was really interesting because I don't really like I wouldn't say I, I attempt to have like an 
influencer type social media presence, you know, like I kind of just do my thing. Like I post a lot of pictures of my horses and like I um, post pictures of my dogs, you know, like I don't think anyone would go to my, my Instagram and like immediately be like, Oh, this is like a, like a, a media personality. You know, I think it's just, I try to distill like what's really going on in my life. So so yeah, to have that turned on me was really kind of interesting. But um, I've watched it happen to like a lot of my girlfriends in the space, and they get it a hundred thousand times worse than I do. So that that uh, there have been like some collective moments where like for my hunting community, like we've all felt uh, targeted or harassed or not taken, uh, not being criticized for the content of our ideas, but criticized for simply existing as women in the space or as, you know, I have a really good friend who's trans that I hunt with and like hearing what they have to go through that, like, there's just um, things that happen that I feel like are inhumane, <laughs> you know, and I, yeah. and that's where I get upset. Um, I don't, you know, I used to really get worked up, of, you know, when I would see something that I was like, well, that, that seems really unethical, you know, or like, why are people hunting this way? Or like, what are they doing? You know, um, like the group and grin controversy when I first got into hunting was really big. And, and I was like, well, what does this mean? You know, why are people doing this? And um, you get context, right? And it changes. But like, there's simply no context for demeaning someone for their gender or for their the color of their skin or for um, their sexual orientation like like there's no good argument for that and um, I'm happy to argue about ideas all day but when I'm being personally attacked or you know feel like my friends are potentially at risk because of internet behavior uh, that's really what gets me down. <laughs> It's a, it's a really an unfortunate thing. That was a very honest and reflective answer. So thank you for that. Uh, and it, it could, I definitely see those. I, I would consider them extremely bad faith uh, comments um, come in that direction because you can, you can choose whether or not you want to take a grip and grin photo. Like that's your choice as a hunter, I, I would say, but to, to express yourself as either, um, you know, a trans hunter or, you know, uh, someone who identifies as a woman and a hunter, like that's, that's no longer a choice. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe the hunting's a choice, but the, the other part isn't. So it's, uh, it's, it can be disheartening, I think, to see those, I would call them disingenuous comments towards folks who, who are just trying to get a, a lot of times just trying to get a leg into the industry or lifestyle in some ways too, right? So. Yeah, or to share their experience, right? And yeah. I think that like, it's a it's in poor taste to to you know I try not yeah and I'll say that like I've gotten like really upset about things and probably like said things to people I shouldn't have said right like so I mean I think that we all get into those spaces but like um you know calling someone a name rather than like coming up with a good argument usually just means you don't have a good argument mm -hmm. um so I I it's hard for me to like take things seriously. But then, you know, I think you also have people that get really serious about <laughs> potential harm or like trying to, 
to um, manipulate someone in one way or another to um, silence them. And yeah, that's, that's a real problem. And I get that it's an extremist thing, right? Like there are a few people that are doing that, but yeah, it's unfortunate that, that I've seen not only myself, I don't, I mean, I don't mind it for myself almost even as much as I mind it when I see it happening to like really good, kind people that are just doing the best that they can. And for some reason, you know, they're getting attacked on the basis of something that's not a choice. Right. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm with you a hundred percent. It's, that's pretty frustrating. It's almost unbelievable how much effort some of these people will put into trying to, you know, tarnish a name, tarnish a person, or just try and bring somebody down in over social media or whatever it may be. Like obviously, like for example, you said somebody obviously dug into your personal life and tried to take a poke at you. Like that takes that is some effort to do. And like it's very intentional. It's not like they're just breezing by and leaving a shitty comment or something like that. Like people are putting a lot of effort into this and it's, it's, it's unbelievable that someone would, would take the time out of their life to try and bring somebody else down like that. In my mind, I think that's called doxing. Is that the correct term? Do you know if that's the, yeah. Yeah. Like where, like, thankfully I wasn't like fully doxed, you know, like people didn't like put my address online, but like it got, got pretty close to that. And, yeah, so I mean, it's it's funny. Like, uh, there's like the big argument about like not telling people where you are. You know what I mean on social media? Like, like um, not posting like a hunting spot or something like that. But like, I'm actually pretty careful about posting spots because I don't want someone to go back and like, you know, know where I am. Like, whether that's like um, making sure that geotags are erased from pictures or like not putting up like where I keep my horses. Like, just just different things like that. Like. Which sounds extreme, but man, like when you've seen the extremes that some of these people go to, it's like pretty wild and pretty grotesque. But yeah, yeah I don't know. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, that's good to reflect on because like I myself, um, I, you know, I, I would never, I, we would probably be mistaken for fitting into more of that traditional hunting role or style coming from that lineage than uh, that we'll call it like the new age or whatever, uh, however you might want to characterize it. But I've never had to think about whether my photos geotagged or something like that. We're not that famous either, just to be clear, but, <laughs> but it, it puts not things yet. in, it, not, yet. It, not yet. It puts things into perspective though, about like, you know, what other hunters have to go through to just kind of ensure their safety in the field or even out of the field. Right. So, um, I'm more worried about whether my GPS has batteries in it. I'm not thinking about, <laughs> and I've made that mistake before, but, um, you know, that, that's just almost like another layer of safety that I don't have to worry about. And it, I, I hope, I hope we get to a point where, um, we can all kind of be on the level playing field in that regards. Things that I'm encouraged by is like, uh, we've talked about some of the negatives of social media, but we've also seen, and even in the mainstream media, I feel that, um, there's been a lot of stories of um, we've seen a lot of different stories now of hunting. Like um, women are starting to take space for um, themselves in the hunting community. Obviously, there's opinions on whether they should be wearing makeup or not. Like, um, sorry, I just <laughs> I, I made this. Uh, it's funny because I, I made this reference in uh, in a podcast we had with uh, um, a lady. Oh man, almost a year ago now, I bet. 
and uh, we're kind of having the makeup conversation and, and why does anyone care? And I kind of brought up, you know, well, we do this goofy thing where we, uh, maybe not goofy, but we, we always uh, like shave our mustaches for like elk camp and deer <laughs> camp, pretty much all hunting season, which is uh, is not exactly... Uh, it doesn't go over well in the household. No, it doesn't put us in the spotlight by <laughs> with the significant others. So it's like if you if you want to compare those two like yeah. things right there, like I don't know, just yeah. lots of the conversations don't make sense to me. Yeah, but those you know uh, I put on makeup if I know I'm going to be photographed, and if I'm not, I don't. Want to yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I feel like there's like a. a but like that's like um, you know like I work from home I'm like. I don't wear makeup when I work from home, but like I wear makeup every single day when I went into an office. Like that's mm-hmm. just like, that was a part of the deal um, for me personally. So it's funny. I feel like I just want people to be like whoever the heck they want to be as long as it's not harming anyone. You know, yeah. like if you want to wear blaze pink in Wisconsin from head to toe and like go out and whitetail hunt, like hell yeah, go do that. If you want to be in like full makeup when you go hunting, like do that too i like there's there you know i am always impressed by women who have like unbelievably beautiful hair in the south like it's 100 percent humidity if i go to the south i look crazy i look like a crazy person so like i yeah i mean we all have our talents and you know what we also have the things that like make us feel secure in who we are and like it's uh worth it to give people space to just be that way like who cares Mm -hmm. you know totally Blaze pink, that's uh that's a new color for me, but I'll I'll check it out and see. <laughs> it, it, I think it's become legal legal in uh a pretty good amount of the states. No way. Yeah, so like blaze pink well, it's interesting. Okay, so here's the interesting part. Yeah. Scientifically, blaze pink is more visible than blaze orange. I gotta get well, it's not legal here. I was gonna say I gotta get me a blaze pink vest now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm thinking of just like playing a joke on everyone and going to the Montana legislature and just asking them to put blaze pink in, because I think everyone would think that's the last thing I would do. <laughs> so I think that like, I think that maybe I have to do it now, like go to the legislature and say, Hey, I know you guys are trying to privatize elk, but when can I wear blaze pink? <laughs> <laughs> you say privatize elk. Yeah. There's like a lot of shitty bills in Montana right now. Oh, that like, sounds awful. It's not great. Yikes. Yeah. This this whole uh, color conversation has me uh, thinking about conversations I've had with my significant other because we have two kids at home and uh, she does a lot. She spends a lot of time, you know, thinking about the proper ways to to raise these, these boys. We got two boys at home. And uh, so somewhere, sometimes she dug back into like, you know, the whole color gender thing. And, you know, do, do boys actually like the color blue better? Do girls actually like the color pink better? This and that. And, and like somewhere back there, she came across like some article or something that, that actually stated that way back when I think pink or purple was actually a pink, boy's color. Pink the, 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 was the more kingly, yeah. regal color of the... Yeah, of societally, over blue. that's what it was. And then yeah. it somehow shifted and now it's... And men used to wear heels too. Yeah. It was a uh, dresses and stuff. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So times change. <laughs> Social media came it's around. Big. Just it kind of puts the perspective how silly 
Wait, don't they is. don't they still wear wigs in Canadian Parliament? No, not anymore. Uh, oh, <laughs> no. But our judiciary system, they they still wear these big gowns with like uh, they're they're almost like warlocks in some ways. It's pretty. Yeah, yeah. It, Amazing. It's worth checking out. You know what? I think our politicians should go back to wearing wigs because then maybe they'd all take themselves less seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah maybe maybe that's the answer I or maybe they could just take themselves a little more seriously too I don't know I think yeah I don't know yeah either you know taking themselves seriously for the right things taking themselves less seriously for um you know just being human yeah yeah yeah, exactly so we've kind of like talked about some uh just to recap some of the ebbs and flows in both media and conservation your involvement in that um hearing you kind of on the front line a gear junkie that's just really cool to see and just another kind of facet of the outdoor world just being uh thrust in the spotlight what what's what do you think's on the horizon here like what's next where do you see the 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 media lens turning to like what's the next big thing coming forward that's a hard question i know so interesting um i mean it's changing so quickly all the time i think that's sort of the interesting thing about social media is that like Now, you know, uh, seven years ago when I started, like we were like talking about organic media and now it's all about, well, how do you beat the algorithm? Right. So, so like, what does that mean? And what does that mean for like future conversations and like future media outlets? And then you have like the whole space of fake news and like the deconstruction of media as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Where do we go from here? I don't know. You know, I think with hunting media, I still want to believe in like the democratization, <laughs> you know, I like the democratic Republic of hunting media. Maybe we should call it. Um, <laughs> I, I think that within the space, it continues to improve, I think. And hopefully I think like, at least in my time, you know, um, I continuously am having conversations with people at all the media, you know, whether it's outdoor field, it's stream or meat eater, it's a small community and I have faith that we can get better together, you know, and like, and hopefully like I can be a part of that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that like hunting does have a conscience, you know, I think that like when we see the way that people have connected conservation to hunting, I mean, that's also new, right? Like, like even at the turn of the, 20th century we were wiping out species because we didn't have hunting regulations so like it's pretty new to think of hunting as a conservation strategy so like how do we move forward with that as our conservation needs grow even more dire right that's a really interesting question my only hope is that uh people do the best with what they have you know um so maybe i'm like a eternal optimist (laughs) to think that way you know, like there's certainly always going to be the dark corners of the internet, whether that's the hunting community or not. And I have a lot of faith in people that are communicating about hunting these days and the new people that are creating new communities within that space. And then seeing the larger community welcome those people in, you know, I think there's a lot of good ripple effects within what we're doing. And, and um, yeah, I don't know that that's a great forecast, but It's certainly my optimistic view of like where we could go, right? Like where the public has access to more information about hunters that like 
informs them of, uh, you know, people beyond the trophy hunters, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. or like the families that are feeding their kids with deer meat and venison. Like, yeah, there are so many more stories to tell about what we do. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. It's constantly evolving. So hopefully it's evolving in a good direction. And yeah, I have hope for that. On the, on the higher level, I'm wondering too, like we've talked about the hunting community maybe at times being polarized and certainly the, the media world has been a polarizing one as of late too. Um, but I think we've also on the human level learned to some really tough lessons about what happens when things get that polarized. And it seems like to me, at least in a few instances, we're starting to step back away from that. So do you think like we're moving towards maybe, I don't want to use the word collaborative, but like maybe are we moving towards a space where we're starting to recognize again, the value in like some mutual support and what it, what it means to like actually try to get on the same page and talk the same language about things as opposed to just shouting into the, into the void in some ways. Yeah. Or just disagreeing respectfully. Right. I think one of the things that like people that have a voice can do is disagree with people in a way that isn't personally harmful to them. You know, um, I would say that like in my experience in hunting media, like everything's a collaboration, you know, like, like I said, I, I lean on other writers and editors and will run things by people before I publish them to get someone's take that I know is like more experienced in the industry than me. You know, um, I actually did it quite recently with an article that I didn't end up publishing. So like I, I certainly like to think with a collaborative mind. Um, and I think that there's like, there are ways to exist together in peaceful disagreement. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think the more hunting media can do together to figure out like what those ethical lines are, the better, right? Like, I think we are responsible for holding each other accountable at the end of the day, you know, but I mean, you see a lot of brands moving towards that ethical model too. Right. So you see people that are trying to do the right thing, um, in a difficult time, you know, standing up for people of color in our hunting community and our fishing community, doing things that, you know, even, you know, even some brands like weren't, uh, comfortable with speaking up for public lands five or six years ago, you know? So like now that would be kind of like a, are you crazy sort of moment, mm-hmm. right? Like, of course, like you should stand up for protecting wild places. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that the more hard conversations become the norm, like hopefully the more we can grow into that um, better model, right? Whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. It's funny because like the, the perspective of these of people that are kind of like dragging their feet on this and, and trying to stop change in the, in the hunting community. I'm almost like sometimes I get the, 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 the idea that they, they perceive themselves to be very tough when in fact they aren't having the tough conversations about what is actually happening in the hunting community and, and how to yeah. collectively bring stuff together to benefit everybody in the hunting community. Instead, we're just, kind of yeah. they just want to get stuck there and 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 it's, it's funny like I, I i like the fact that you brought up you know we have to disagree um on some stuff but still move forward kind of thing and that and that you know shines another light on like 
very rarely do we do people agree on the same thing at the same level. And if we did, it would probably be a pretty boring world that we lived in. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, um, I find it. I find it like comforting when people disagree with me in a way that I can feel respected, <laughs> you know, like, and I hope to do that for other people, you know, I would say that like, in a way, like working with animals has kind of taught me that, like, how many times do our animals disagree with us on what we want them to do on a daily basis? And we have to figure out a creative way to say, Hey, like, we got to do this for your own safety, for your own good, you know, like, like horses are super powerful animals. And if I'm not on the same page, like, I can get hurt or they can get hurt and I'm probably the one who's going to get hurt. So like, I really have to figure out like creative ways to solve issues with my animals, you know, living with a four month old puppy, my God, like he's, he always makes the wrong decision. You know, you know that living with a six month old puppy, you know, that living with kids, right. You know, I worked with kids for a long time and like if left to their own devices, uh, a lot of times they'll make the right decision. And then the rest of the time they're really going to dig into that wrong one. So like, I, I don't necessarily think that adults are that much damn different. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, like we, I think we think that we are, um, but like at the end of the day, like if we can disagree while like keeping each other's humanity intact, like, man, that's like way more of a gift than I think that a lot of us are given in, in difficult situations. And, and yeah, I mean, if we can be creative about the way we approach a problem, then we can solve it. You know, I think like, like being around kids and animals has definitely like taught me that over. Yeah. Change is hard, but that, that sounds like a path forward if I've ever heard one. So um, I'm glad we solved all the world's problems here today. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Didn't even have the campfire going normally when I, when we figured out all the world's problems, there's a campfire in the background, but we're inside today, so we can have the fire. <laughs> and a jug of whiskey. And a jug. There, <laughs> there are some jugs of whiskey around, but they're... <laughs> They haven't I'm been digging into my water, so that's, oh. a, that's what I've got going on. Cheers. <laughs> well, Nicole, we want to thank you, first of all, th so much for connecting with us, responding to our DM, and agreeing to come on all the podcasts. We loved having you on. It was a, a fun and informative conversation, so thanks so much. It's a, it was so awesome to talk with you guys and just, yeah, thanks for doing what you do. Like, it's exciting to have conversations with people that go both it's that are respectful and fun. So like, yeah, I'm excited to listen to more of your episodes too. Cool. And if uh, we wanted to follow along on Gear Junkie, what's the, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. I mean, you can just go to Gear Um People want to find me on Instagram. If you just type in the later letters NKQ, uh, my name will probably come up. And then I just recently started a, a newsletter on Substack called This Week Outside. So if you want to look that up, um, should be pretty easy to find too. And that's really, I'm digging into like some things that are a little bit more like esoteric and have more to do with like animals and conservation. So yeah, just trying something new. Um, and, and I'm excited about it. So yeah. And any, and if anyone ever has questions or if there are like new hunters with questions about gear or just getting into hunting in general, like, um, I'm always happy to answer questions for people. Well, we, we're glad you got that job way back when in 2012, was it? 14. Yeah, 2014. 2014. Yeah, my, my Craigslist dad. Yeah. yeah. Your, your, voice, your voice for both hunters and uh, conservationists is appreciated in the landscape. So uh, keep, 
keep up the good work and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, same to you guys. That was 83 with Nicole Colteri. Nicole, again, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for entertaining us and uh, thanks for entertaining the audience. Sheldon, what's cooking in the store, buddy? Yeah, the store is cooking, man. We got a lot of cool shit in there. And not, there's one thing that I've been kind of ragging on old Chaser about is these uh, coffee cups that we released. They were a hit. They're super nice. I really like them. I am uh, actually have a couple cups up here in Churchill, and I couldn't even hold <laughs> on to them. They People took them before I even could pour a glass of coffee in them. But Chase, do you have anything else coming out for coffee cups or related items? Ooh, I am going to leave that a secret. We might have something new coming down the pipes here. I want to say thanks to everybody who bought those cups. They they sold out in uh, literally a heartbeat. So that was that was awesome. Um, but we I think we do have some new stuff coming to the store here very soon. Um, so from well, from my do, perspective, that. <laughs> Do it this way. Is there more coffee cups coming down the pipe eventually? Because I think there's a lot of people that want to get their hands on some. Yeah, actually, we, we had a lot of people uh, reach out to us after we sold out asking if, if we were going to get more. And uh, that is in the works, I believe, to do another. Uh, we'll probably do a, a short order of, of cups here. And um, I think that's going to be the last round of cups coming up here. So um, keep an eye open. Yeah. For sure. The other thing too I want to mention about the stores that we do have, this is for our podcast listeners, and I'm going to give you guys kind of like the the starting, you know, three seconds before everyone else gets a, gets a sniff at it, but we do have some men's tanks coming out. So if you are interested in getting some uh, tank tops for men, they're actually actually unisex. Like women can wear them obviously as well too, just sizing will be a little bit different. But if you do want one, DM us on social media, Facebook or Instagram. We'll we'll get you on a list. We'll maybe send you a few pictures of what we got before we actually release them on Instagram. Um, we we really appreciate our support we get from our listeners on on the podcast platform. So um, this will give you a little bit of a head start if you want to get your hands on them. We do have limited stock on them as well. And uh, for the sweater front, we have everything back in stock except for the tan goose hoodies, which are still on back order. But we have these black goose hoodies. They're black with a white goose, white panoramic down the sleeve. One of the most comfortable sweaters I've ever worn. I've been saying that for months now, but unreal, unreal sweater. So if you want to get some of them, get some of those campfire sweaters, come to our website um, and yeah, take a look. We got lots of cool hats too, buffs, anything you really need to look amazing. To look like Chase and Tristan and myself out in the woods, you got to check out our store. <laughs> check it out. We also have some hats on sale and, uh, our t-shirts are also on sale right now, so check that out. Sheldon, I just, and maybe I'll, I'll add to the mystery a little, but I will say that the tanks look fresh. They look real fresh, buddy. Yeah. So, yeah, I like them. What do you, you're the one that's kind of like the guinea pig. You got to take the, the prototype, let's say, and, and wear it for a while. What did you think of it? I think it fits great. It fits true to size. Uh, I love the new look to it, so... I can't wait for folks to get a taste of the new look uh, of some of our gear, the future panoramic. So that's exciting. And uh, I won't say too much, but it's just kind of shitty because the weather turned here recently too. So we, we had plus weather. So I'm hoping to wear it on the weekend again and get back into it on the weekend. Nice. Gun show. 
And if that's it, that's all for the store. I believe that's it. That's all for today's podcast. I just want to squeeze in quick one more time here and say thank you, everybody, for listening and tuning in every time we release this podcast here. If you enjoy it, make sure you share it with a friend. Hit that. Uh, give us a rating on whatever platform you're tuning in from and leave us a little message. And reach out to us on uh, social media. We always love hearing from everybody. And uh, without any other delay... Make sure you keep those lines tight and edge on your Leatherman and keep your turkey slate dry.